and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, as is my colleague and co-host, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Ben, there's real baseball. There's real there baseball. There's real baseball, and we don't know what to say about it, but we're happy that we get to watch it, at least. So we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff that's happened in this opening week, and then in our second segment, we're going to talk about how you should ignore everything that's happened in the opening yes. week, more or less. We're going to talk to baseball prospectus writer Rob Maines about April lies, the ways that stats can be misleading early in the season. Okay, instead of talking to MLB commissioner Rob Manfred, we're talking to Rob Maines, our friend. (laughs) Right. So we are... First, going to just talk about a bunch of observations from the opening week. We're not going to make too much of them. We're not going to make any definitive pronouncements. They're just interesting things that have happened that we have taken note of and that we will discuss the realness of or the, the likelihood that they'll continue. Yeah, so this game is called Real or Not Real. Those of you who watched the hit film Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2 was the full title of the film. Uh, Katniss and PETA do this, you know, real or not real thing throughout the course of the movie, and we are going to do the same. I have 12 things that have happened over the first two days of the season. I'm going to ask Ben, you know, not literally is it going to stay the same, like not literally is Dallas Keuchel going to go the entire year without allowing an earned run, but, you know, generally, is this is this real or is this not real? <laughs> well, I think it's important potentially because Keuchel was a big reason why the Astros fell just short of the playoffs last year after making it in 2015, coming off the Cy Young year and then struggling. And it seemed like injuries had played some part, but it was hard to say how much because he's one of those guys who everyone kind of questioned even when he was pitching at that high level because he didn't have the stuff of the typical Cy Young candidate. So... If he is fully healthy and recovered now, as he seems to be, this is a positive sign that he can have 2015 Keiko-like starts, which doesn't mean that he will continue to. But if he does, that would obviously be big for the Astros because they have a really incredible lineup and the rotation is the weak spot. Bullpen's great. Hitting's great. Lack of an ace was sort of the only knock against them. And maybe Keiko can be that guy again. This game's going to destroy you. I asked you a, <laughs> a, a, a binary question and you hedged for like 40 seconds. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of that. So are, are we saying, I mean, he only had four strikeouts in this yeah. game. It, did he walk anyone in this game? Because that's a I think, thing. I that think he, he walked a couple guys, but yeah, again, not to make too much of one game's line, but I'll say not real that he posts a zero ERA all season long. That's kind of the the problem with not hedging in these things. Yeah. Real or or not real is is kind of uh, impossible to say at this point. Well, my answer, I mean, my answer is kind of a hedge too, because I wanted to, to talk about Lance McCullers, my Cy Young pick for reasons passing understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, who uh, struck out seven and allowed one run the next night. And I think Keuchel is real, but not as real as McCullers is. That would mm-hmm. be my answer. Okay. All right. Staying in the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Joey Gallo hits a huge home run every other game and Nomar Mazzara four hits in his first two games. I so want the first one to be real. We we talked about this in our tune in minute Gallo's enormous home run on Tuesday and I've been writing about him for years. I called him the most interesting man in the minors a few years ago. He has not been the most interesting man in the majors, although I've still been pulling for him because of this tremendous power. So is it real that he will at least occasionally hit a mind-blowing home run that I think you said you actually shouted out loud when you were watching it? That is definitely real. We have seen him do that before, but... I am not going to make any pronouncement on whether he will actually make contact often enough to hit those home runs with any regularity, although that would be fun for everyone. And as for Mazzara, I I think that's more likely to be real. He started off really well last year. He was obviously a highly touted prospect, kind of fell off maybe as the league adjusted, but at his age, you would certainly forecast some improvement and the Rangers need improvement from these guys because they're not going to get the great timing on offense that they had last year. And they're going to have to make up for it by guys like Profar and Mazzara and Gallo making major strides. I think Jeff Bannister's two large adult sons are very real. And if they're not real, I'm going to root for them hard enough until I will them into to realness. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I think Mazzara just looking at, Looking at him hit, you see the gears turning. I've said the same thing about Kyle Schwarber that it's like almost like a Joey Votto like approach that that mm-hmm. you could like you could see him thinking through the at bat, and I think I think that's good. I mean, he's he's just not going to be as bad as he was last year. I I just can't imagine it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, next one, Masahiro Tanaka, twenty three sixty three ERA. <laughs> yeah, so I guess with Tanaka, he's always going to be a guy who, when he has one lousy start, is going to make everyone wonder because he had the partially torn UCL Mm -hmm. that he didn't get repaired, and he's been pitching on it for years now and pitching at a high level and has really proved everyone wrong who said he's just delaying the inevitable, or at least that it wasn't wise to delay the inevitable. So He might still be delaying the inevitable, but he's just delayed it for a really long time at this point. (laughs) Right, exactly. So, I mean, he was a down ballot Cy Young candidate last year. I think he had a good spring training, so I wouldn't make too much of it. But yeah, with him, I mean, he any pitcher is a guy whose elbow could give way at any moment. But with a guy who we know does not have a 100% ligament, not that any pitcher really does, there's always an elevated risk. So wouldn't be worried yet, but would be slightly more worried in his case than I would in someone who, as far as we know, is fully healthy. Right. I, it's a little bit of a running joke that I've I've written the Noah Syndergaard, Tommy John surgery story four times yes. already and, <laughs> right. and never. And, you know, <laughs> mostly I just talk about that to annoy Sean Fantasy, our editor in chief, who's a Mets fan. But mm-hmm. uh, Tanaka is sort of the same way. But barring injury, I mean, I think he'll be he'll be fine. But that's, yeah. a, you know, barring injury is a bigger, uh, <laughs> right. bigger caveat for him than than most other teams. Mm-hmm. Um, so last year we saw Cleveland go all the way to the World Series wearing their chief Wahoo hats pretty much every mm-hmm. game. This after the organization made a big stink about how they were they weren't getting rid of it, but they were trying to consciously move away from it. And they've worn chief Wahoo uh, in each of their first two games. So is that real or is that not real? Are they sticking with it? 
Unfortunately, I'm going to have to say real, at least for 2016, because you'd think if they were going to make that change, they probably would have done it over the winter instead of doing it mid-season. So I think it's inevitable. I think it's probably not too far off. But at this point, I guess they're committed for now. Yeah, I think to there might be a little bit of that. You're, you know, you remember when the Rockies went on their run in 07 and they wore those black jerseys every single game yeah. for like a month. I think the the blue alternates with the Chief Wahoo cap have sort of taken on that life for the Indians. And I just mm-hmm. wish that somebody would, like anybody in that clubhouse, would just sort of look at the logo. I feel like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, like is you know, are we really doing this? Yes. Like there there are debate, you know, there are debates to be had about let's call them cartoonish caricatures of Native Americans, but like that one's just so beyond the pale. I can't imagine anybody defending it in 2017. Yet here we are. Mm -hmm. So that's an annoying, an annoying thing about one of my favorite teams in baseball to watch right now. Yeah. All right. Number five, Mike Matheny in opening night brought in Sung Wan Oh, his closer for a five out save. Yeah. How about that? What do we know? What was the lead? The lead at the time O came in was one nothing. And then uh, the Cardinals tacked on two more runs in the bottom of the eighth. So mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, one of those exactly the kind of situation you'd want to bring in your closer in, I guess. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected Matheny necessarily to be influenced by the Andrew Miller trend that everyone's mm-hmm. been talking about. Although the Cardinals, I know, have discussed using Trevor Rosenthal in a role like that. So yeah. this has to be considered a, a positive sign. You'd think Matheny would be one of the late adopters. I don't know whether O was ever used this way Last season, what his he earliest was, entrance or longest outing was? Well, he was the setup guy for most of the year when, yeah. you know, until Rosenthal finally lost it. So he had a few, I think they said something like 10 or 11 uh, multiple inning appearances. So this was this was his, uh, just because he got into trouble in the ninth, he, he threw more pitches in this appearance than any other uh, big league appearance he'd had. But he'd like, uh-huh. he'd gone two innings and he'd gone 30 pitches before. And, and not only, not only was this just looking at the, the game log, not only was this a one run game in the eighth, uh, they brought him in to face Schwarber, Bryan, and Rizzo. This is like, this is textbook what we want. Yeah. All right. Well, good for, good for Matheny. Yeah. I'm sure Cardinals I mean, fans will be happy to hear that because he was extended and they're stuck with him. So, yeah, it didn't really work, but, you know, I think it was good process, bad result. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So, in that same game, uh, there was lots of talk about Javi Baez and his magical tagging hand. Uh, does mm-hmm. the Javi Baez hype train continue to roll all year? Defensively, yes. I'm not sure if his bat doesn't match the glove. I don't know whether it will continue to because it it really started building in October when he was hitting really well as well as playing defensively Mm -hmm. extremely well. And so he looked like a superstar in every facet of the game, whereas during the season, the defense had been great, but the bat hadn't been. So if he takes a, a step offensively, yes. Otherwise, I think he'll continue to be a staple of highlights, but won't really graduate into the stratosphere, at least as far as value that some of the other young Cubs occupy. Oh, I think I think he's going to be this generation's Yadier Molina, where he's going to do a couple very specific defensive things really well. And Uh everybody's going to extrapolate that out to him becoming or to him being the the best defensive player in his position. And they're Mm -hmm. either not going to notice or not going to care that he's not that good a hitter at this point in his career. Like, I think people, there are a lot of people who like, there's just, there's a disconcerting amount of Yadier Molina Hall of Fame talk. And like, I don't think they realize how bad he was 
offensively for the first half of his career. And I think I see something similar like that for bias where people use it. It's not a hipster thing because it's, it's going to be the thing that norm core fans use to try to look like hipsters. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Which is of a course. very specific way to put it. I realize. <laughs> of course, Molina did eventually become an excellent hitter, particularly mm-hmm. for a catcher. So maybe Baez will have some similar late career spike, but yeah, he was a, a glove first guy early on. All right. So does StatCast star rating for catches last the season? I think so, but I'm sure it will continue to be refined. The way that MLB has been doing this generally with rolling out StatCast stuff is not really waiting until it's a finished, perfect product, but waiting until it's good enough to tell us something and be interesting and then making tweaks as they go. So, for instance, I don't think the StatCast defensive ratings right now take into account the wall and if a ball hits the wall or if a fielder was running backward instead of forward. And these are things that matter. And I know that they are on the roadmap for them to continue to improve those stats. But if they've settled on the five-star system for rating defensive plays, then I assume that given the fanfare it's gotten in the buildup, they will continue to stick with that. And maybe it's something that can be easily conveyed to people who get scared of stats. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I I think we're starting to realize that this isn't for us, that, you know, Uh This isn't for people who would like to do, you know, some sort of semi-rigorous social science research with this. I think it, Mm -hmm. I think it gets changed, but I think something like it uh, is here to stay, which I think is pretty much what you said, right? And and I'd like there to be both, ideally, Mm -hmm. sort of a an easily accessible way, and then a way to access the the nitty gritty and and do all the research you want to, but it remains to be seen whether we'll get that. All right. So our man, Christian Betancourt, took the mound on opening day and it did not go well. So right now he has more <laughs> wild pitches than innings pitched. And yes. one of those wild pitches uh, resulted in a pretty nasty cut on his leg. So is that yes. real or is that not real? Ironically, he converted from catcher so that he could avoid nasty spikes on his leg at home plate, but he got one anyway. So... I'm still sort of a believer in the Betancourt experiment, I think, at least at least in being allowed to continue for a while, since, again, the Padres are not playing for anything in particular right now. So I'm going to say that he writes the ship to some extent, that he manages to last, maybe not as the shutdown reliever at the back of the bullpen, but at least as a, a middle innings guy who continues to get into games. Yeah, I think he lasts the season, if only because the the Padres, right. you know, what do they have to lose? All right, mm-hmm. Kevin Kiermeyer is hitting 429, real or not real? Yeah, well, he was a popular breakout pick prior to the season. Offensively, of course, he'd already mm-hmm. been one of the best defenders in baseball, and that alone had made him a down-ballot MVP candidate, if you believe the stats. But if he can become an above-average hitter too, then he really will be a superstar, even if it's not necessarily recognized by everyone. And I know that there were some reasons to think that that could happen. He was pulling the ball more last year. His plate discipline improved. He was getting more balls in the air. So it seemed like he was making progress. And obviously you're not actually asking me if he's going to hit 429, but if you're asking if he's going to be better offensively, I would say yes, and I will say that he will justify the race faith in him that they showed by giving him an extension. Okay, you talked me into it. I was going to say no, and I think (laughs) the more I think about it, the more I think like just at the very beginning of both of their careers, I 
struggled to keep Kiermaier and Kevin Pillar straight in my head. You mm-hmm. know the def- you know glove first ALE center fielders, and I think I'm I'm not a hundred percent over that. So that might mm-hmm. be causing me to underrate Kiermaier as a as a hitter. Uh-huh. All right, Archie Bradley had a really exciting uh, uh, outing last night. Three and a third shutout innings pitched in relief, seven strikeouts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean he's kind of the forgotten man. I guess you could call him a post-type prospect or sleeper mm-hmm. at this point, in that he was a top-ranked prospect and projected as a future ace. And then injuries struck, and it wasn't clear what he would become. But often that is the path for someone who is expected to be an ace, and then things went south, and they'll reemerge in the bullpen as a shutdown guy who maybe can go multiple innings, and of course teams are interested in having guys like that so i would say real yeah i this is exciting to me not because i think everybody sort of thought of even at this point in his career if bradley busted as a starter he'd be a really good back end relief pitcher but yeah. the ability to to hold up over multiple innings like you you remember there was that one playoff run with tim linscombe as a a multi-inning shutdown guy and obviously Andrew Miller this this past offseason like you stretch that guy out to you know instead of throwing one inning four times a week he throws two or three innings twice a week that mm-hmm. could be that could be a lot of fun and I'm I'm just I'm really intrigued that the Diamondbacks let him throw that long I don't know if that's a prelude to him returning to the rotation or if like that's actually how they want to use him but that could be really cool yeah Freddie Galvis <laughs> on pace for 162 home runs Yes, I know that you're watching this carefully as the author of an article about Freddie Gallus's home run total last year. So, yeah, I mean, he's one of those middle infielders who suddenly is hitting 20 because it seems like every middle infielder is now. Right. And it's to, this feels like a, a good time to reiterate that the official editorial position of the Ringer MLB <laughs> show is that the balls are juiced. So, yes, <laughs> there's I'm sure there's other stuff going on also. So that's contributing to right. it, but that is my suspicion. And thus far, at least, there doesn't appear to be any evidence that that's not the case. So I don't know how fluky Galvis's home run total was as opposed to every other slim middle infielder who did the same thing last year. But I don't see any sign that the league as a whole is going to take a step back in the home run department. My favorite thing, like as ridiculous as, as it is that Galvis hit 20 home runs, like as ridiculous as that is on its face, like he's a good defensive shortstop who hit 20 home runs and was still like really bad last year. Like he wasn't, yeah. he was like a, a, you know, zero to one win player last right. season, which just, yeah. I didn't, I didn't think you could do that. I didn't think you could hit for power and play a good shortstop and still be bad. Yeah. I mean, that's what we saw over this winter. Everyone was wondering why Mark Trumbo wasn't getting a bigger deal or Chris Carter wasn't getting any deal for most of the off season and home runs just have to be discounted now because everyone's hitting. Apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, particularly if you have like a 270 OBP or what he, whatever right, he put too. up last year. All right. Last one. Jose Quintana, five and a third innings pitch, six earned <laughs> runs allowed. Real or not real? Is it possible that he just really wants to stay with the White Sox? Because that would be one way to do it. I I think... If anything, he is the most interesting storyline on the White Sox this season. I mean, certainly 
Tim Anderson and Yohan Mankata and all the young guys are too. But as far as watching what Rick Hahn will do, he's definitely going to be trying to trade Quintana and there are going to be a lot of suitors and interest and another big prospect return. So I'm going to say not real, not reading anything into this at all, but a slow start by him given his consistency over the last several seasons, would be unfortunate timing for the White Sox, if anything. Can I just say, like, every take about how the White Sox have to trade Quintana, like Uh they they have to lower their demands, they have to trade him now, he's not definitely not going to be on the next good White Sox team makes me want to put my fist through a wall because he's <laughs> he's 28 years old. He's like he was every bit as good as Chris Sale last year. He's on a, a fire your agent bad contract that uh-huh. any teams that just makes him even more valuable in a, in a trade. He's locked up through 2020. Like you don't mm-hmm. think like Yo Mancata is going to be halfway to free agency by then. You don't think that. <laughs> that he's that they're going to be good again by by that point. So and, and like we we did this with with Sale last year, we did this with David Price, we did this with Cole Hamels like every time every time there's a good pitcher on a bad team, like the baseball media just forgets that the game does not owe you a perfect a perfect allocation of resources. <laughs> like sometimes like like sometimes the the best thing to do is just walk away from the deal and wait for a better one to come come along. Like how much how much less valuable is Quintana going to be with mm-hmm. three years left on his deal as opposed to four? So yeah. I think just cool it is is what I would say to like everybody just needs to, to chill out. And the White Sox are doing fine keeping him. He's going to be good. They're they're either going to trade him, and if they don't, that's fine too because I think they're going to be good before that contract's up. All right, Michael Bowen has put the rest of the baseball world on notice. Cool I will it fight with, all of with you. Jose Quintana, folks. All right, so we will wrap up there. We will be right back after a quick word from our sponsor with Rob Maines from Baseball Prospectus to talk about April Lies. Today's episode is brought to you by SeatGeek, the smartest and easiest way to get tickets to every MLB game. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing those Javi Baez tags and Kevin Kiermeyer catches in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. It's the easiest way I know of to shop for tickets. You can be anywhere and with just a few taps, instantly find seats. You can use it for concert and comedy and theater tickets too. SeatGeek is designed to make your tickets buying experience easier than ever, saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals, and to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. This is the sabermetric approach to ticket buying, people. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, just like major league contracts, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Best of all, our listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get that rebate, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code RINGER MLB and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code RINGERMLB. That's all one word today. Okay, so it's an April ritual. We all either make too much of opening week and early April events, or we caution each other not to make that mistake. And one of the cautioners this week has been Rob Maines, a writer for Baseball Prospectus, who wrote an article 
called April's Biggest Lies, and he laid out some of the statistical mistakes it's easy to make at this point in the season, which for all I know, Michael and I may have just been guilty of in the first segment, but we're having Rob on to set us straight. Hello, Rob. Hey, guys. How are you doing today? Okay. So do you have a least favorite April lie, some sort of refrain that we often hear at this time of year that you wish we didn't hear anymore? Well, you, you can make a plausible argument that about any conclusions that people draw from the first few games of the year are, mm-hmm. they, they kind of border on being comical. I mean, New York Post had this fabulous headline yesterday, what happens if terrible Yankee start gets out of hand? <laughs> this, is, you know, this is after one game. But they were, they were bad in spring training, and we know that dictates the rest of your they season. They were really completely. bad in that first game, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, and Tanaka's <laughs> obviously broken, but apparently CeCe's back in Cy Young form, so everything's okay. <laughs> right. So, you know, to a degree, this stuff, it's kind of amusing, but on the other hand, there are people who actually take things seriously, and that's where I think things really kind of run a run aground. The the one that that I guess irritates me the most, and we're not early enough that we'll see this, but give it a couple of weeks, it'll start cropping up. Is when people start making conclusions about April attendance, comparing it to average attendance for the prior year and saying how baseball is you know declining in popularity, which completely ignores the fact that. The weather stinks, it's raining a lot, and the kids are still in school. Yeah. Do you have any sense of, of what the difference is there, like what the what the uptick is after April attendance-wise? Yeah, I tried to, to look that up, but there weren't at least my limited um, places to, to check out. I didn't find any reliable source for mm-hmm. April attendance. But it's even though you get the nice opening day boost, it's still a good 5% or so down, at least from when it is the rest of the year. And that's largely kind of weather dependent. If you're, if it's a cold spring in the Northeast or in the upper Midwest, that's going to obviously hold things down more than it will down in the Sun Belt. Yeah, I was going to say the, and that skews more towards there are more teams in the, the Northeast and the Midwest because I'm sitting here in Houston knowing that baseball's back and soon after it's going to be 95 degrees every day for the next six months at some point. <laughs> So what can we write about as, you know, I've been doing this for like seven or eight years and I've run into the same wall every, every April where, you know, there are games. And so people expected to draw conclusions and there just isn't anything until around Memorial Day. It's about when I feel comfortable saying, you know, this guy's up, this team's in trouble, that sort of thing. Yeah, I I was at a Sabre Analytics Conference, and I can't remember which GM said that the baseball season, you spend two months kind of figuring out what you've got, then two months figuring out what to do with it, then two months doing that, you know, whether you're going to be in all at the trade deadline. And his his conclusion was the same as yours, Michael, that, you know, you kind of have to wait till Memorial Day to really know what hands you've been dealt. I mean, there are a couple things I think you can pretty safely uh, look at the beginning of the year. If you've got someone who's coming back from an injury, you can see whether they seem to be better. Velocity for pitchers is one of the things that tends to stabilize pretty quickly. So if someone's down a good amount from the prior year, you can start getting worried about that. But it's really tough when you're looking at more of the statistics that need a while to stabilize, whether you can draw any conclusion from what happens in April any more than you can draw a conclusion from a guy who gets hot or cold from the, you know, from the all-star break to the next three weeks after that. 
You do have to be careful, though, because this year MLB switched over from PitchFX to TrackMan for tracking pitch speeds. So you'll notice now that pitch speeds are a little bit higher just because of the measurement method. PitchFX used to track pitches 50 feet from home plate, whereas TrackMan records the top speed at any point in the ball's flight, which is right out of the pitcher's hand. So the speeds will look a little bit higher now just because of that. I didn't even wait for April to start drawing conclusions because I did an article on spring training offense and what it told us potentially about home run rates and strikeout rates, because historically there has been a pretty strong correlation between spring training league-wide rates and regular season rates, even though it's different conditions and largely different players. It's still 36,000 plate appearances or something like that when I looked. So it's meaningful. And it seemed like from spring training this season, home runs are still up. Strikeouts are probably climbing even higher. But what do we know about April historically as offense or as a month for offense? Well, it tends to be a weaker month in general. I actually found that I looked at the last 21 seasons that's going back to, that's all the post-strike years, and scoring in April is actually ever so slightly. I mean, 0.03 runs per game higher in April than it is over the full season. But that's not really a meaningful difference. Um, And it seems to come from largely a pretty significant increase in walks that occurs in April. Every April for the last 21 years, there have been more walks given up than there are over the whole year. And that kind of suggests that you've got either pitchers or umpires that still have to knock off the dust uh, or the rust or whatever that they acquired over the offseason. I was thinking, I don't know what workouts umpires can do in the offseason, you know, to get ready for the, for calling strikes and balls. But in terms of batting, batting averages are lower in April, slugging percentages are lower in April, and the home run rate is a little bit lower in April. So all those, you know, if you just look at kind of the back of the baseball card numbers for either players or teams, you might conclude that a slow start to the year would portend downturn in offense and that's clearly not the case so you know the the Mariners fans who watched their team scored one run in two games against uh, the Astros probably shouldn't draw any conclusions from that yeah there was an interesting article by Max Markey at Baseball Prospectus about four years ago he's now a Cleveland Indians analyst and he tried to tackle that question of whether pitchers are ahead of the hitters or hitters are ahead of the pitchers at the beginning of the season because you can find people claiming either one And he found that once you strip out the effect of weather and try to adjust for all of that, that the pitchers are behind the hitters, the hitters are ahead, and that that effect seems to last even maybe a couple months into the season. So maybe that kind of accords with what you're finding about walks being more common, maybe control just isn't as pinpoint in this part of the season. Yeah, the difference is it's a walk rate, you know, walks per uh, plate appearance is about half a percentage point higher in April than it is over the full season. And that's that's a pretty significant move. And you're right that, you know, Dr. Nathan, Al Nathan's pretty conclusively shown that you hit the ball harder when the weather's warm, and that can have something to do with depressed uh, batting statistics in the month of April. And more than that, just looking at the list of trends we've identified, it just seems like everybody, it, the game's just like a little bit sloppier because the, you know, offense is up, but defense is, is worse. And the, you know, we've talked about the wall great so you know is everybody just still sort of rounding into regular season form do you think yeah i think that's part of it uh the and you're right the rate of getting on base by air is 
It's been higher in April than in the other months uh, of the year in 19 of the past 21 years. So yeah, we're seeing, we're seeing sloppier baseball, more errors. There's probably to some degree a little bit of a sorting process that's occurring in April too, where, you know, we're trying to figure out whether certain guys can play positions or adopt to new roles. And in some cases, the answer is going to be no. And in some cases, the answer is going to be, yeah, but it takes a little while. I'm thinking of uh, like Jonathan VR, though, wow, he butchered a play I saw the other day, but um, he kind of started slow last year on the field and then improved. And, you know, that, I think that pattern probably uh, feeds into what we see on the field, you know, with balls in play in April. You think of like Pokey Reese had three errors on opening day. I remember one year in the 90s, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and, that's a guy who uh, his his glove was his main tool. And you also looked into starting pitchers and whether they go less deep into games. What did you find about that? Yeah, and the answer is that they do. The average start lasts just a little bit uh, shorter in April than it does over the remainder of the year. And you know that one could argue that that's because there are more runs that are given up. But my response is number one: there's hardly any more runs that are given up in April than the rest of the year. Just as there, you know, the starters aren't going that much less deep in April than they are the rest of the year. And I attribute probably what we're seeing in April for starting pitcher more to just managerial caution in the first months of the year. Again, you've got some guys who are coming back from injury and those who aren't are coming off a long layoff. And there's no need to ride a guy for 115 pitches. If he's holding a three-run lead going into the late innings, you might as well pull him. And I think that's probably more just a little bit of caution than anything else that's making starting pitchers go less deep. But uh, to those who are already chagrined over short starts, April is not going to make those people feel any better. Yeah, I was wondering the other day because we've seen in the past, I've found that March is the most dangerous month for pitchers, that if you look at the month that the most pitcher injuries that lead to surgeries are diagnosed or reported, it's March by a mile. And that seems to have to do with a lot of things partially that some pitchers will have unreported injuries from the previous season that they'll finally acknowledge when they get back and are still hurting. But it's also, I think, just the difficulty of adjusting from offseason to in-season, even though a lot of pitchers these days train year-round. And I was talking to someone the other day who was wondering whether, because of that, because pitchers keep themselves in better shape all the time, they should pitch fewer innings in spring training. Because in recent years, we have seen some pitchers seem to run out of during the playoffs and you wonder whether who knows maybe uh, if they had pitched 10 fewer innings at the start of the season they would have those 10 more innings at the end of the season I don't know whether that's the case I don't know whether there's just a certain amount of innings that pitchers have and they're just eating away from that total no matter what they do or whether the pattern of ramping up to your midseason workload can help extend the the life of your season and perhaps protect you from injury or even whether you can identify those pitchers out of the you know that seems like a big end question that you're trying to that yeah. you'd have to try to apply to you know a small end group of, of you know an individual pitcher yeah and I wonder whether those extra innings at the beginning of the year could be offset by, because this, I know some people propose this, giving pitchers some time off, so to speak, in the middle of the year, you know, July, August sometime, move a guy out to every six days or, you know, skip a turn every once in a while just to keep him a little bit rested later in the season. But we talk about a lot, but I think, uh, you know, 
people sort of ignore that this is a really long season. It can really wear any athlete down to be doing what they do, whether they're hitter or pitcher, for six months. And I think that, you know, the 162-game starter and the on offense and the the starter who can go every year 33, 34 starts, they, they may become kind of a dying breed. I wonder if, if some of the pitcher usage anomalies in April have to do with the fact that just because nominally you have your entire staff healthy at the beginning of the year, you could sort of look at the April schedule and script it out in a way that you can't in later in the season. Like we saw uh, the Mets use Robert Gesellman in one inning relief when you know he's probably going to be a starter for them this season just because his turn's not going to come up. So I wonder if they're, you know, some of those effects are, are impacting pitcher use too. Yeah, that's a good point. Because rotations, if you if you were to take a team starting pitchers and just draw them, you know, put them on a spreadsheet one after another, rather than noting all the off days in between, you get some kind of odd patterns in April. Because you know, a, a pitcher might go with only three games uh, or two games between starts, but that might actually be five or six days, depending on what's going on with the uh, schedule and with uh, the rain. So are there any other stats categories you looked into for this article that we haven't touched on yet? Well, just as walks per game are higher in April than they are the rest of the year, it's not a real real strong trend, but strikeouts per game are a little bit lower in April than they are mm-hmm. in the rest of the year. So anybody who looks at what happens this April and think that the strikeout scourge is finally receding is probably going to be premature. There's, you know, kind of nothing that I've seen in terms of approach either by hitters or pitchers that would suggest that we're going to see any change from what we've seen so far. It's just that, you know, if, if pitchers are having a little bit harder time finding the plate, we're not going to see quite as many strikeouts. So, We've been, you know, very solemn and stern about not rushing to conclusions, but you know, we've got we're recording before uh, Wednesday's action, so we've had two games of of uh, data to draw from. What's one wild thing that you're sort of rooting for to to keep up? Well, I would. L- I'm curious to see. I watched both of the Mariners Astros games, and you know, not only did they take out Tal's Hill, but they also moved in the fence and center. And so naturally we saw... Which is infuriating, by the way. We're going to... It's like, it was It was the one... Like, baseball's built on... I'm just going to shout about this for a couple seconds and we'll get back to you. I'm, I'm sorry. Baseball's the one sport where the field doesn't have to have regulated dimensions like it does in basketball or football or hockey. And that allows, you know, so much of the game is built on the, the character of the outfields. And nobody was getting hurt running up Tal's Hill. Like, it was so cool that there was topography in fair territory. And <laughs> it's just infuriating me. Every time I look out and at that ugly-ass block-age batter's eye, it's just, it, like, <laughs> I'm going to suffer a, a fatal <laughs> apoplexy I, I, I think by I the actually, end of the season. I just can't, I can't believe they took it out. I think I disagree. I Of course I think, you disagree. Like this, and that's the worst thing is everybody's like, yeah, it's dumb. And, every, and everybody agrees that it's dumb, but it's not dumb. Like baseball's supposed to be just a little bit dumb. No, like it's I allowed agree to be that, a little bit dumb. I agree that ballpark quirks and eccentricities are one of the best things about baseball and one of the things that separates it from the other sports that have standardized dimensions. But I always thought that that one in particular was kind of self-consciously quirky and contrived. Like I thought it was just sort of like, 
we're going to make a weird thing that you might have seen in an old school ballpark, but it didn't have the natural charm that you would have had if it had developed organically. Well, that's because nothing nothing developed organically in Houston. Nobody lived here 50 years ago. And so everything <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you know, everything's just been bulldozed and rebuilt since 1975. But yeah, you want to settle this, Rob? Yeah, Ben, sorry, man. I, I, I'm with Michael. <laughs> okay. I, yes. Not only, not only a hill, but there is a flagpole out there. Well, the flagpole was a little dangerous and they moved that over the wall. Yeah. So like I'll concede the flagpole. Yeah, but but because <laughs> you, you always heard someone's going to hurt themselves out there and nobody ever did. And, and it was neat. And so what, what I'd like to see is since not only they take it out, they move the fence in. I, I'd sort of like to see, you know, Houston become a Homer Haven, becoming one of the parks with the biggest uh, favorable home run park factor in the majors, just because it would be such a turnaround from where, I mean, going back to Astrodome days and everything else for them. But, you know, well, especially if uh, Keiko and McCullers pitched the way they did the first two games, we, we might not see that anyway. But that's that's one thing I'd sort of like be be interested in seeing. Keiko is kind of a fun guy to watch pitch. So, you know, if he's back, that'd be fun. But I guess kind of the first couple days, it's it's more just seeing everything for real rather than faux atmosphere spring training. And that that was that was enough to get me excited. I I'll I'm gonna wait at least till the weekend to start drawing conclusions about what we might be looking at. So mm-hmm. you brought up something else I want to ask you. At what point does this feel real? Which is a different question from at what point do you feel like we've got useful data? Like you know, at what point does it feel like baseball season? Well, it's, it felt for me there was baseball season when I saw the Giants get uh, two blown saves in one game. <laughs> that, that seemed real. I, you know, it just the, to me, it feels real really from day one because just the way that pitchers are used and the batters are used compared to the spring training games that we might have seen you can tell that things count i mean yeah you want to give guys some rope and you're trying to see what people are going to you know whether young players are going to develop and what they're going to develop into but you know the we're everyone's trying to win the ball games at this point rather than just showcase a bunch of guys like they do in florida and arizona so I thought that the three opening day games were all really interesting and all kind of demonstrated what regular season baseball is like. Last thing, you are looking at sort of larger stats here, stats that in some cases take a little longer to stabilize, become meaningful. And one of the things that we can take advantage of now is tracking technology, StatCast and TrackMan. And we don't know exactly what to make of all of that yet, but at least there's the potential for early April stats to be more meaningful than they were in the past. And you mentioned that something like pitcher speed, for example, is something you can look at early on and think that it might mean something. Could you just give people a general idea? I know Russell Carlton has done a lot of research and writing about this, but just a, a kind of classification of the type of stats that you can trust in fairly small samples and the kind that you can't. Oh, Ben, I got to I got to do this from memory. Well, I know that pitcher <laughs> pitcher velocity is something that stabilizes sure. pretty yeah. quickly. If I recall right, strikeout and walk rates tend to as well. Mm-hmm. It's more the the things that happen on contact that take longer to stabilize. Things like batting average. Um, right. 
on-base percentage, slugging percentage. And I had a uh, an email conversation with Mitchell Lichtman once, and he pointed out that one of the confounding things that happens at the beginning of the year is some batters and some pitchers are going to go into the season with a new approach. Maybe they're trying to get more loft with the ball. Maybe they're trying to go the other way. Maybe some pitchers are changing their repertoire or their sequencing. And some of them are going to be successful, and we're going to see the results of that pretty quickly. Some of them are going to go through April. It sucks. And they say, well, screw this. I'm going back to the way I was. And which really makes the April statistics almost irrelevant. So I, one would hope that if you can draw some conclusions from pitcher velocity, that you might be able to draw some conclusions about batter exit velocity or launch angle. But I'm just guessing that that might take a little bit longer. I mean, there's no, there's no scenario that I could imagine where a pitcher is going to intentionally throw less hard, but you can see an approach a batter might take, like trying to go the other way that might result in less hard contact that might get dumped later in the season. So that would make the stat cast data a little more long to stabilize, which would probably make the default fallback what we see with regular batting data, which if I recall right, it's it's a, like a good couple months or so before you can really draw any kind of uh, conclusion. Yeah, I think just as a general rule, the, the more layers there are between the player's intention or talent and the result, the longer it will take to trust. For example, as you mentioned, something like batting average or batting average on balls in play that's dependent on the batter, it's dependent on the pitcher, it's dependent on the defense and luck. There are all these different factors that go into it. And so it's hard to trust quickly. Whereas something like velocity, well, that's just kind of an innate ability of the pitcher And something like swing rate, for instance, that's just a decision that the hitter makes. It might be slightly influenced by whether the pitchers he faces tend to throw outside the zone or something like that. But for the most part, that's kind of a a quality that will come to the fore very quickly. If you're someone who swings often or takes a lot of pitches, you can tell that very quickly. So something like that is kind of the dividing line. So Use your April stats responsibly and read Rob at Baseball Prospectus. He writes and does a lot of interesting research regularly there. You can also find him on Twitter at Cranboy, Cran underscore boy, that's C-R-A-N. And Rob, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, so that is it for today. We will talk to you again on Monday, by which time many of the things we talked about will have probably reversed themselves completely. And I hope I will be less shouty by Monday. This was <laughs> I had a lot of coffee this morning. Okay, it's the early season. It's Adrenaline is spiking and there's no other outlet. So this is how it comes out. All right, talk to you later.